1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that is past surfaces for doing <coughs> what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless adultery. With the respect, of, with the respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that through, but though judged in the flesh, flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to the one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever seeks, speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. I would uh, want to start by just wishing you all a happy Mother's Day. Um, I read a very interesting article this week that said for... I hate when that happens. Um, I read an article this week that said that Mother's Day is actually one of the most difficult days of the year for a lot of, a lot of women in particular, but couples that are trying, you know, trying to be pregnant, pregnant or uh, you know, they lost a child. Um, I, I think I understand that. I think I, I understand where you get in a situation and you're looking and you're thinking, for so long, this is what we've wanted. And for whatever reason, God has not allowed that to take place. Um, and certainly I understand that, and I'm going to pray for in a moment that God would really give you a lot of comfort um, in that station. But I th really think the focus of Mother's Day is certainly not intended to cause anyone to think less of themselves because they don't have a child or they lost a child even. I, I think instead it's, it's intended to be a moment in which you're able to be grateful for something that you've partaken of. All of us have had mothers. Now, obviously, in a group this size and with everyone that's watching online, there's been times where we've had, some of us have had mothers that weren't very good, but some of us have had spectacular mothers. And uh, I think that is the essence of the day, where you're able to think again upon all that it took to raise you, all that went into your life, um, even the things that you didn't notice, that as you get older, you begin to notice. And so I, 
I wish all of you a happy Mother's Day. So bow with me in a word of prayer, and uh, I'm going to jump in. Father, I, I would ask that this truly would be a day of, in which we would be mindful of all that, all those investments that, that went into our lives, the things that we knew as well as the things that we didn't. And I pray that you would really give us hearts of gratitude, even in the hearts of those who are still longing to have children that have not, perhaps the hearts of, of those that have had children and lost them. But, Father, every one of us has known in one way or another what motherhood means. And even, even if we're sitting here this morning with a, a tremendous amount of difficulty because of the way we feel and think about our own mother, it does not diminish in the least bit what the institution of motherhood really is and the important place it, it the, the part it plays, both in our own lives and our culture. And so I just pray that you would, you would give us all just a tremendous sense of gratitude and a sense of awareness of what really that means. And so we thank you for these things, and we commit this time to you for we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one thing I need to tell you, uh, just uh, sounds like an infomercial. Our text system is down this morning. So, so if you have questions, you can come and talk to me later, but we're not going to be able to facilitate questions at the end. So some of you are probably already breathing a sigh of relief. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I know I am. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, today's sermon is, is, is titled Mission and Attitude. And Throughout this series, what we've been readily acknowledging is that Christianity as a system of truth at different points in our lives can really, I know it did for me for several years, it tends to abstract us from our daily lives. It causes us to think and to act upon principles that, that pertain to the outcome of our world. And because of that, it can tend to draw you out of your life. On the other hand, Christianity can be understood in a way that that teaches you about your daily life, it teaches you about your relationships, it teaches you about your own disposition and attitudes, and it shows you that you can manifest your faith day to day in a way that is amazing. It changes, really changes the world. And so throughout this series, what we've tried to do is to, to, to really be able to show that kind of tension. Now, what we've been focusing on throughout the series is the book of First Peter that has a remarkably credible message about adversity. And it speaks to the type of pushback, the type of difficulty that every single one of us face from time to time. There's many of you here without question that are sitting in this room or watching online that you're in the middle of it right now. And in that sense, because it's something that we, each and every one of us, go through in different ways at different parts of our lives, it really is the road that is most traveled. There's some of you in this room that have, had, have basically had a life of ease and somewhat, somewhat missing this part. But whether you realize it or not, your life is charmed by comparison to most of the people sitting around you. Because each and every one of us have known difficult things at times, and for you to be able to say, well, here's my experience, I just can't relate to that. That 
is the anomaly, not these things that we're talking about. So the, what we've been driving is really two different ideas. Is how do you understand the circumstances of your life that don't turn out the way you thought? You go into a marriage, you start a company, you, you join a company or a team of people, uh, you, you, you invest in a project, and it, it, it turns out quite differently, diametrically different than you initially imagined. How do you understand that? And perhaps even more pointedly, does adversity and suffering, does it diminish you or does it make you greater? How is it that you think about the people around you that are going through suffering? Are you expecting them to grow and to play bigger in the days to come or are you expecting them to kind of go away? So those, those are kind of the cutting edge type issues that we've been trying to deal with. And this particular portion of, of Peter's letter addresses I think two very different attitudes and the corresponding actions that support those attitudes that, that make being on mission, we talk about that a lot, but whatever that does mean, I think these attitudes, they make mission both effective as well as sustainable. I think there's few things more frustrating in life than to see a glimpse of something that works, only to have it like a light fade away, to have it kind of you just lose your grasp of it. You can't hold on to it. And I think both of these attitudes that Peter deals with, they really they speak deeply to what we believe about our purpose in life and what we really believe about who we are. Now, the first of these purpose, I've titled it intentionally. The first one is, I'm doing the right thing. Now, I know that that can be seen two ways, so I want to kind of pull you away from one of it. This is not a person trying to convince herself that she's done the right thing when she hasn't. You see, some of us tell ourselves that. I know I'm doing the right thing. I've heard it a lot in counseling and coaching in 25 years. But that's not what I intend by this. This is basically a deep internal resolution or resolve that says, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do, as for me, I'm going to do the right thing. And this comes out in the first two verses of chapter 4, when Peter begins by using that clause in verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, it's really significant because he's pointing back to what he wrote in chapter 3 in that example of Jesus' suffering where he, he did the right thing and he was blessed by his father. Now that the blessing of his father was shown in three different ways. He was raised from the dead, number one, in chapter 3, verse 18, and then he was actually given the ability to go to a place. Now, we didn't talk about this much last week. In 2 Peter 2 and then in the book of Jude, there's a discussion of a place called Tartarus. That's the formal name. And it was a prison for angels that actually disobeyed. They, they departed from their intended purpose and during the time of Noah. And they've been held in a prison for thousands of years because of what they had done. Now, this is the place that when Jesus, the moment he died in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. Now, when we, when we talk about our confession, when it says he descended into hell, this is where they get it, is that Jesus actually went to this place and he said, you were wrong, I won. And so he was raised from the dead. He went and made this victory proclamation in chapter 3, verse 18 and, or 19 and 20 of that he actually won. And then thirdly, he was seated 
in this glorious honor at the right hand of God himself. And all authority, this is talked about in several different places in Scripture, particularly Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, every power that has ever existed will be subjected to him. That's a pretty amazing blessing. And so you, this pattern of Jesus gives you the example of a person that says, I'm going to do the right thing and suffers for it and then is blessed. Now that's the image that's porting in. That's what he's pulling in to these two attitudes. So this first attitude, he, encourage, he encourages us as Christians to arm ourselves, which is a reference to preparation or equipment. So if you were going to go backpacking, you would get out your tent, you'd get out your sleeping bag, you'd get out your cooking stove or what have you, and you'd put them all and prepare them into your backpack. It's that kind of an idea. And he says you need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. Now, the terms they use there means a purpose or intention that results from a very serious consideration, a very serious deliberation. And so he, he's saying, okay, when you think of that example, this needs to be an attitude that isn't flippant. It isn't something that you kind of acquiesce to. This is something that after serious consideration, you're able to say, I need to quit myself the same way. And he, he goes on from there, and he begins to stress that the significance of this is an attitude of, of being able to say, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, by that statement, he's not saying that once you suffer, you quit sinning. He's talking about a shift in thinking, and you could prove that by several different places in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles um, chapter 5, 6, I'm sorry. Um, and then in 1 John 1, 8, it says there is, the man who says he has no sin is deceiving himself, and the truth isn't in him. So Peter's not saying that once you suffer, you stop sinning. He's talk, talking about a really substantial or significant shift in your thinking. And it takes place once you go through trials. And once you endure trials and yet you hold on to your faith, there's something very different. There's a different kind of understanding that emerges from that. And he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh there's a cessation of sin that begins to manifest itself. And as it does, it, it begins to cause you to begin to see that this internal shift that has taken place, it gives you a sense of purpose that's different than what you formerly had. It was different than when you, before you became a Christian or when you were just kind of trying to feel your way through life. And it gives you this ability to even more hold on to your faith when difficulty arises. Now in verse 2, he expands that further when he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In essence, he's saying that when you face opposition as the result of your faith, and yet you, you refuse, you doggedly hold on. You don't compromise so you can... Avoid the trouble. Now, think of what that's like. I think many of us have been in relationships, and sometimes romantic, sometimes not, where something comes up, and for you to do the right thing, you know it's going to cost you. You know, you can tell internally, like Greg, you start sweating because you know that there's just a sense in which there's going to be a contradiction 
that's going to come from your faith. Now, when you face that and you compromise to avoid the trouble, it diverts this process that he's speaking to. It derails it from accomplishing what he's saying. And he says when you actually survive that by doing what is right, you no longer, the rest of your life, you, it's like indelible. You can't go back. You can't turn loose of it. You didn't before, and you don't start. And so this shift in your attitude makes you capable of facing all kinds of trials. When you're tempted to digress and go back into what you formerly did, it, it actually makes you sustainable. It sustains your faith. Now, after he presents that and sets it out, he explains two actions that support and, and nurture that kind of an attitude. And the first is positive progress. We see that in verse 3. And I, I want to show you how practical this is. This can kind of seem a little abstracted. But let's face it, throughout life, you can't start anything without following it up and have it work, work out. You can't go to school without studying. You can't, you can't start a relationship without commitment. If you do, you, you can start, but it's not going to succeed. You know it isn't. And it begins to fail. And so when he shows this first, this positive progress, when he describes it in verse 3, it's the buttress to this attitude that supports it. So in this first of the actions that support this new attitude that emerges in the Christian life is, is positive change that comes from recognizing that the time already passed me is already sufficient. In other words, it's almost like you're looking at a time timeline, time and now's the present, and it's like, okay, at this juncture, you can look back into your past, and you can say, okay, I've had enough of that. And again, this is reinforcing or un unpacking a little bit further this shift in me mentality, this shift in attitude. And the time already passed is enough. It's sufficient for me to have done and to live the way that I lived. Now, sometimes as Christians, we can overreact and we can pour contempt on people that haven't come to that conclusion yet. And I think this is where sometimes our duplicity and hypocrisy can most manifest itself. It's almost as if we communicate to them that we have no idea why you're so stupid. We have no idea why you would think that there would be any pleasure or outcome in pursuing that kind of a relationship, having sex before you're married or cheating on your wife or your husband or whatever it might be, embezzling money from, from work. It's like we do know what it was like, but we're able to say, I've done enough of that that I don't want to do it anymore. And so there's a positive progress. And so he throws down a quick list. He said living in sensuality, which is basically refers to a type of narcissism that craves immediate gratification. He talks about passions, which predominantly, the idea that he, that he uses there, the word, predominantly referred to sexual desire. He talks about drunkenness, orgies, par drinking parties. We all know what those are. And, ver and, and then sixthly, he says lawless idolatry. You actually sustained a form of worship that did nothing but destroy you. And so there comes a time, especially after you've suffered and still held on to do the right thing, there comes a time that you're thinking, all right, I don't need to do that anymore. And it's not out of contempt for those who still see that. 
It's out of an understanding of your own life and progress. And so the first supporting action here is really positive progress. The second thing is enduring ridicule. And so going back to in just a practical way, think of anything that you ever did that you didn't have to sustain. In other words, the moment that you, you committed to do it, you got it. I doubt you valued it very much because the, the things in life that, we, that mean the most to us are the ones that are expensive. I venture to say that the majority of your gifts that you're giving as tokens of your gratitude this morning for Mother's Day, they're not inexpensive. And if they're inexpensive, it probably has something to do. Now I'm going to get you all in trouble. <laughs> I can feel myself talking myself into a cul-de-sac, so I, I hate that feeling. Now I'm going to start sweating. Um, if you did buy a cheap gift, it probably matches your gratitude. I told you I was going to get you all in trouble. It, it probably matches a little bit of gratitude. Now, perhaps... Perhaps you don't have very much. And even the smallest of token is a substantial gesture. But that doesn't change the fact that your heart feels this gratitude. And when you talk about this enduring ridicule, when you look at what he explains in verses 4 to 6, it starts to make perfect sense. Is that not only are you going to have to make positive progress in what it is you believe, you're going to have to stand against those who want to take it away those who want to knock it out of your, your hand. So this next action is a, supports the purpose of, the, of uh, the purposes that Christianity brings into our lives is withstanding the ridicule that comes from those who still live as we formerly did. The term that he uses for malign is the term blasphemous, which is a term that just meant to, blas to blaspheme. It literally meant to speak injuriously of. In other words, you're saying things intentionally to harm. And so he's talking about a sharpness and an intentionality of ridicule that he says you're going to have to withstand that. Now, that's emerging out of this amazement. It carries a, it's this idea. This is, uh, there's an astonishment in their mind that you don't do what you used to formally do. Now, that tells you something about the group that he's talking about. He's not talking about ranked strangers. He's not talking about people that perhaps you've even just met. He's talking about people that knew you before. And he says they are amazed. They're astonished that you don't live the way you used to. And they blaspheme you. They ridicule you. Now, the last statement, I think, in verse 4 to 6 is really interesting. And there's been a ton written on this as far as the gospel that was preached to those who were dead. Um, there's been all kinds, if you can imagine, all kinds of things deduced or written about this. Some people would say, well, this supports, you know, like different religions that are praying for dead people so that they could change their destiny. That's not what it means. I think the best understanding, and I did a lot of research on that this week, the best understanding of this is that Peter is denouncing a conclusion that non-Christians were coming to, particularly in the middle of the first century, that a person believed in Jesus and then they died. And then the ridicule that other people brought was, you see, that you're just like us. 
in spite of all your religious conviction, in spite of the way that you've tried to live your life, you lived and you died and you had the same end, so what's the use? And he's speaking to that. He is saying, no, this is the reason that the gospel went into the lives of people that have died. They haven't gone on to the same end as you will. And so this is pretty sharp when he says it. So there's two... There's two points that I think that these actions support. He said, you know, and I think in general, this reinforces what many of us already know, that a clarity of purpose in any aspect of life is going to require you to be intentional. You're going to have to back it up with your action. And when it comes to enduring seasons of suffering, you're going to have to be, to arm yourself, to prepare yourself, to equip yourself with an attitude that even if you suffer, you're going to do the right thing because there's going to be a blessing that follows after that. But that attitude is going to need to be supported by positive progress and a willingness to endure the pushback. Now, the second attitude, I think, is really an interesting. This is going to take me a little nuanced, a little understanding to explain to you. The second attitude is you concluding, my life matters. My life matters. And so I'm not trying to go around trying to prove that I'm good enough. I'm not trying to throw myself into relationships, hoping that somebody can talk me into believing that I'm good enough and I'm value enough to to do this. I think this is cutting to the core. It's something that is surprisingly, even amazingly, deficient in our culture today and even in the church. Now, he begins it in verse 7, the second attitude, when he simply... The second attitude that sustains the Christian life is that you actually count for something. You have to start valuing your own life before you can expect anybody else to do that. Now, he simply says in this attitude, he, needs you, he says you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Sober Both of them are into internal descriptions of a person's attitude. The idea of self-control refers to being of a sound mind as opposed to being, like, insane. And to be sober-minded refers to being free from every form of mental or spiritual excess or confusion. So this is a person that says, I need to pay attention. This is a person that is not able to say, oftentimes when I work with, with people that are abusing, abusing alcohol or abusing um, drugs of any sort, prescription or, or illegal, it's almost always to the point that they've lost their value of their lives. Their lives aren't worth paying attention to. They become too painful. And so what he is saying, this prescription of being self-controlled and sober-minded, is saying you, you have to pay attention. You have to prepare yourself to engage life with a witty mind, with a sober mind and with a, a sanity that doesn't come from any other place. Now, I, the moment that he says this is, is super interesting to me because he said, because the end of all things is at hand. Now, he is following in a long line of biblical writers that use that same idea. You're like the grass of the field. You're here today, gone tomorrow. Or in Psalm 90 and verse 12, when Moses says, teach us to number our days that our, our, our hearts might be filled with wisdom. Now, I know there might be some of you Christians, as well as as many of you that are not Christians, that think, man, that is morbid. Why would you expect to motivate people by telling them they're about to die? That seems 
That seems like a big risk. Now, what I want you to consider is perhaps one of the greatest researchers in our generation, if you would consider that, is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who her, she's best known for her research on what she called the five stages of grief and loss. Now, she warned that one of the greatest causes of people losing significance in their personal lives is the denial of death. Now, this is really interesting. I'll read the quote in just a second. Because our society has tried to sanitize death from you. I hope you realize that. When you go to these... Uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble another way. Um, when you go to a uh, mortuary, they don't want you to face death in the face. I would venture to say that over half of you have never seen a dead person. And if you have seen a dead person, it probably wasn't the dead person that you knew. Now, the reason I say that is that they have professional makeup artists. They have people that go to their closet and they choose the best clothes. I have gone to funerals my whole entire life, and I wonder who the person was in the casket. Because it didn't look anything like what I perceived them to be before they died. And that is for a reason. It's very intentional. It's, it's our society and our culture wants to sanitize all of that. Now, even when you think of funerals, now, when I do funerals, it goes over like a turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> now, the reason I say that is that I want people to face death because it forces a kind of faith, doesn't it? I think it's this weird term because every single person in the room, even the atheists, and they're the ones that usually get the, angry, the most angry with me, is that you're thinking something about where this dude is. You're thinking, oh, he's died. He died. He's gone. Well, how do you know that? Those of you that are Christians, you're thinking, oh, he's in heaven with God. But you believe that by faith. Every single person in that room is, is, is using their faith Assumptions to some end, every single one. Oh, he's in a better place. How do you know he's in a better place? And so this is one of the greatest opportunities, but bar none, our society doesn't want us there. And it does everything it can. And as families, we spend tens of thousands of dollars sometimes to keep people from, people from going there. How, when was the last time you went to a funeral that was called a funeral? They're not called funerals anymore. I get invitations to do them, and they're all celebrations of life, and that's what this is getting at. And, and Peter says, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be self-controlled because you're not going to live forever, nor is God's purpose going to last forever. And so he's cutting through this, and what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said in her research, this is what she said, it is the denial of death that is partially responsible for people living empty, purposeless lives. For when you live as if, you, if you'll live forever, it becomes too easy to postpone the things that you know, you, you know that you must do. In other words, there's never a bucket list for you. You never can hear John Mayer singing, say what you need to say, right? They're always going to be there the next time. Well, I've got news for you. There's going to be times with the people that you love the most, you're going to go away, and you will not see them again. That happens, and it happens more than you think. And so there, there's a sense of urgency 
that he's imposing here. There's a sense of in which it's supposed to be tensioned. Now, Kubler-Ross's research also went to a warning on the other side, that when you try to do this, it can, do, it can backfire on, in your face. And this is what she wrote about that. She said, people in the stage of resignation, when you actually resign yourself to die, people in the state of resignation are very often indignant, full of bitterness and anguish, and very often express the statements, what's the use? I'm tired of fighting. It's a feeling of futility, of uselessness, and lack of peace, which is quite easily distinguishable from a genuine stage of acceptance. Now, the frightening thing to me is that typifies some of you as Christians. Because Christianity is always pushing you to say, you're not going to live forever. You don't even know what tomorrow is going to be like. Stop acting like you can presume upon tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to get you to pay attention to today. But you listen to that long enough and you become indignant and bitter. And you're thinking, what am I doing this for? It's all going to pass away anyway. It's all going to hell in a handbasket, right? That's what we say. And so this strangely typifies some of you who have bought in or resigned yourself to the fact that you're going to die. That's remarkable. Now, in essence, she's saying that the facing of, of all things will put you all in that place where all those bad benefits will come out of your life or all those bad results or ramifications come out. And that was, that's what makes the three things that Peter describes as corresponding actions to this amazingly interesting. The first he prescribes is love in verse 8. Now, all three of these things, I think, when you look at them, particularly together, as they kind of correspond together, they keep you from snapping back the way Kubler-Ross's research has discovered. This first is love, and in verse 8, the kind of love that God tells you to maintain is, it's a sacrificial love. It's the most intense term that can be used in the Greek language. But he explains it. He says, because, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what is that? He's talking about a love that is so charitable and so concerned about the well-being of others that you let all the bad stuff go. You're able to not hold grudges. You're able to say, all right, I probably would have done the same thing five years ago. You're able to... Now, this doesn't make Christians patsies. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a love that is so engaged with the lives of other people that it actually allows you to forgive stuff. He's certainly not talking about it atoning for sin before God. He's talking about you being able to actually have the internal fortitude to let stuff go rather than accumulate. This is the foundation of forgiveness, by the way. And so love keeps you engaged. Secondly, hospitality. This is really an interesting one that he describes in verse 9 because this is, when we think of love, especially the kind of love he mentioned in verse 8, you're thinking of those that live in proximity to you, right? You think of maybe you have friends that you, 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 you appreciate them so much, your gratitude for them is so great that you pick up the tab when you go to lunch. You, you give them gifts that you don't give anyone else. Not just because you're trying to get something out of it, because you really are grateful. But this one pushes you into the sphere of care of other people that you don't even know. Now, in verse 9, this idea of hospitality, he says, number one, it's without grumbling, which makes it kind of hard. 
I can be nice to people, but I don't like it. And some of you probably don't like to hear, hear that from me, but I'm just being really honest with you. I can be really honest with people, but I can't. This without grumbling is really a challenging thing. And now, the hospitality that he calls you to here is, is really interesting because at the time of Peter's writing throughout the Roman Empire, if you traveled, you expected to get in trouble. It's kind of like going to Nairobi today. I've, I've been to Nairobi, I started going in 1985, and I watched it descend into one of the three most dangerous cities in the world. And you just know, if you get out of the airport in Nairobi and you don't know what you're doing, you're going to really get in trouble. And so that was what like, the whole disposition of the Roman Empire was, that, that when you went out, it was sketch, and you only did it when you had to. And he's talking about you engaging with those people, you don't know them, so that you can provide the kind of care that you would want. And so that keeps you engaged. You can't become bitter. You can't say, oh, this is just in futility. So love, and then hospitality, and then the third one is, I think, the most significant one. This is the one that makes it the most personal, and this is the one that proves to you that he's really driving at you matter. Not I matter, not we matter, but you matter. In verses 10 to 12, he talks about service of others that flows out of the gift that you've been given by God as a Christian. Now, that's somewhat challenging because there's some of you in this room that I, I know over the years that one of the biggest Christian questions that most Christians have is, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. That might be a, a huge indication that you're not fully engaged. Because he is borrowing that. He's saying, look, God gave you, according to his discretion, a gift. And it's intended to be used in the service of other people, not for your own glory. And by doing this, it keeps you engaged in a way that you're able to say, my life really does count because the rest of you can't do what I can do. Now, that doesn't make every one of us totally unique or totally independent of one another, but we're able to sense Okay, none of you, I have never, in 25 years, I've never had one of you fight with me to get up here. When the time comes, I'm the only one that stands up. When James preaches, it's the same way. And we've got it worked out. We know who's going to be prepared and who's going to get up here and do this because you're not the one that does this. None of you do what Zach does. None of you do a lot of what goes on here. Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm just causing you to say there, is a, there are parts of a body that make the whole thing function. And what goes on, I think I looked at the team list this week. 22 people were on the team list this week that make this morning happen. And I don't even see everybody that does what they do, but I don't need to. And what he's calling for is a service of other people that you're able to say, I know who I am, I know the gift that God has given me, and I'm actually going to use it for the benefit of other people to the point that they will see that my life and this gift that God has given me benefits them. So much so, they'll want to honor God. That's amazing. And so he's talking about this process by which our lives actually stay very engaged. We can't just say, this is futility. What are we doing? Now, each of those three supporting actions that Peter explains help to tension our lives to continue to move forward while facing the reality of a life that's not going to last forever. Sacrificial love, 
generous hospitality without grumbling, and the service of others with the spiritual gifts that God has given us will keep us from losing motivation and becoming indignant or bitter. Now, I think the credibility and the effectiveness of these attitudes is fairly easy to demonstrate. Okay? It's only take a minute. I would say if your life, if you would say my faith life is thriving, it's because you've adapted. To some degree, you've adopted these attitudes. You're going to do the right thing. You're going to make progress, the action to make progress and to stand, withstand ridicule. And you're still going to do the right thing. And you believe you matter. If you flip it over, if you are struggling today, if you're barely hanging on by the skin of your teeth to this thing we call Christianity, I'd venture to say that you're not committed to do the, the right thing and you don't believe that your life really matters. I think it's that simple. There's not some profound inquiry or, you know, lasers that we have to shoot into the dark and mysteriously show you what's really going on under the hood. It's just that simple. If you are here today and your heart is flooded with gratitude because of what God has done, you are committed to doing the right thing and you believe your, your life really matters. And if you are struggling, it's because you won't do the right thing and you don't really believe that your life matters. Now, one of the questions in the study study questions over the week is simply this. Do you see a correlation between those two? I am committed to doing the right thing, and I matter. Can you see a correlation or not? I think there's a substantial one. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, I know that that probably was maybe a little bit offensive to some moms or tender-hearted people on Mother's Day. And I, I, I honestly didn't intend it to be. But I want it to be as challenging as I think it was when the ink flowed off of Peter's pen. We're coming down the stretch in this book. We're coming to the end of the letter. And I think Peter is almost reinforcing what he said earlier about being holy that separates and love that engages. But here he's talking about two attitudes that are fundamental shifts in a person's thinking where she suddenly can become remarkably aware of a life that matters and be committed to do the right thing. And in doing that, the attitudes themselves won't sustain it. It takes kind of concurring actions along with them to support them. I, I pray that you would speak deeply to us this morning because I, I know without question there's some people in this room and perhaps watching online that when they think of their life, they wonder if they can really continue another year. Maybe for some it's another month or week as a Christian. They're contemplating what it would be like if they just denied the whole thing and kicked it to the curb. And yet in that very same room as we're in this morning, there are many people that are able to say, I believe this more now than I've ever believed it. And it's not simply because I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. It's because I've begun to see the power and the authority of Scripture. As I understand it, it teaches me who I am. It shows me how to live. 
Exactly what we try to teach here at L2. Bible, self, and mission. And I pray with the very brave courage that we would be able to assess our lives accurately as to whether they're real or whether they're not. I pray that you would cause us to have the courage to do something about it. Even for those that are afraid if they let go, they'll never come back. Maybe dealing with doubt has a way greater purpose than that. Help us in these moments as we prepare for communion. As we take it, we pray that you would attend our lives. It would cause us to see the significance of the sacraments in our own lives. I pray that you would receive the balance of our worship and our time together as being meaningful and honoring to you. We thank you for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.